Covenants and Answers. What does the Bible say about death? Who should make the decision to live or die? Doctors? Patients? Families? The courts? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Dr. Pat Zucharan. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat Zucharan and his guest, Kirby Anderson, president of Probe Ministries, will be tackling another tough topic. Pat is currently going through a series that focuses on ethics. The topic at hand is euthanasia. Debate over euthanasia is not a modern phenomenon. Taking a human life is not the same as allowing nature to take its course by allowing a terminal patient to die. Let's join Pat and his guest, Kirby Anderson, as they discuss this controversial topic. The National Director of Probe, Kirby Anderson. And once again, I want to highly recommend his book, Moral Dilemmas. It is one that is used in several Christian colleges and seminaries. It's a great resource for every Christian to have. You can get it at probe.org or evidenceandanswers.com. Kirby, today we're talking about euthanasia. Welcome to the show once again. Oh, glad to be with you. Well, Kirby, give us a brief history of euthanasia. When we talk about euthanasia, Pat, we're talking about this idea of good death. That's where the idea comes from in the Greek. And uh, historically, again, there has always been an emphasis on saving life. But there were times in which, say, physicians might have been bribed by an enemy or something. And so there was never a certainty as to whether or not when you go to the witch doctor or to a, or any kind of doctor, physician, whatever, whether or not they're going to save you or kill you. And so early on, the Hippocratic Oath was developed simply so that there would be an emphasis on the fact that the primary and singular goal of a doctor was to save life. The Hippocratic Oath said, I will never give a deadly drug to anybody if asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to that effect. And so literally, Pat, for millennia, the idea was is that doctors had one goal, and that was to save life. Now, there were times, obviously, when doctors could do no more, and maybe to relieve pain, they would do what they could to you know relieve that pain and maybe even incidentally also hasten death. But this idea of having doctors kill other people really was foreign to the Western culture. But in about the early 1930s, there was the idea in England eventually coming over the United States of this idea of euthanasia. They actually founded a euthanasia society. And so this was the first kind of emphasis that maybe mercy killing would be allowed. Well, there is something that set that back dramatically, and that is all the revelations that took place after World War II. When we heard more about Nazi Germany, the uh, interest in euthanasia was completely chilled by the genocide of Nazi Germany. So it took a while for euthanasia really to catch hold again, but by the 70s and 80s, it was significant again, and very prominent people, uh, probably two that are best known. One is Derek Humphrey, who wrote a number of books, uh, one best known on the subject called Final Exit, and he's the head of the Hemlock Society, which is based in Oregon, which is right now the only state that legalizes physician-assisted suicide. Another key figure is Jack Kevorkian, who actually serves time in jail right now, but was best known for mercy killing. And so we have this idea today that maybe life should be taken. And we also have one very important Supreme Court case. There were the Karen Ann Quinlans and others, but there was actually one case that actually went to the Supreme Court. It's a case involving Nancy Cruzan, in which uh, certainly Nancy, after her car accident, was not as alert as she was before, but her father wanted to simply remove her feeding tube. 
uh, we're not talking about uh, allowing nature to take its course. We're talking about starving somebody to death. And basically what they were uh, wanting to do is to remove the feeding tube. The Supreme Court, in a sense, decided not to decide but allow the lower court to decide and gave permission for the doctors to remove a feeding tube. And since that time, we've had all sorts of cases involving euthanasia come to the major press. Now, when it comes to euthanasia, there's several forms of euthanasia that we're talking about. And it's important we understand uh, different the different types of euthanasia. Kirby, why don't you go over the different forms of euthanasia? Let me do so, because I think it's important to recognize that there is a lot of miscommunication. First of all, I'll be the first, Pat, to say that of all the ethical issues I've ever studied, and you know I've written the book Moral Dilemmas, I'm even working on a, a Christian ethics textbook right now, uh, I've looked at a lot of ethical issues. The one that is most difficult is this one we're talking about today, euthanasia, for two reasons. Number one, the technology. That is, we're able to extend life and sometimes even extend suffering because of all the new technologies and things. We have to sort through that. But second of all, it's really the only ethical issue where it seems like the Bible contradicts itself. Because on the one hand, the Bible says a great deal about the sanctity of human life. The program we did recently on the subject of abortion, we talked about all the arguments for the sanctity of human life. But at the same time, the Bible also talks about death as the great enemy, death as the final enemy to be destroyed, uh, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. So it almost sounds like, well, death isn't so bad. So we'll sort our way through that. But the forms of euthanasia we'll talk about individually in just a minute are voluntary passive euthanasia. That's really, in a sense, allowing nature to take its course. It's voluntary. It's passive. There's nothing that's really done. And in a moment, I'm going to argue that that's really not even euthanasia, but that's where people start playing word games. The second would be voluntary active euthanasia. This would be where some action is taken. Uh, Dr. Chak Kevorkian injects something or uh, a feeding tube is removed or something of that nature. Then the last two would be involuntary passive euthanasia. Those tend to be those ones in which we just say, well, um, whether it's Nancy Cruzan or Karen Ann Quinlan or Terry Schiavo or whoever that is, those are where we just allow um, some kinds of actions to take place because the person is in a coma and cannot communicate their wishes. And then the final one would be involuntary active euthanasia, which almost blurs into genocide. We uh, won't get your permission to end your life. And as we'll talk about in just a minute, when you go to some countries like the Netherlands that have legalized euthanasia, we find a number of people actually have been put to death without their consent. And so there's some real interesting issues involved there. But those are the kind of the four different kinds of euthanasia. Now, as Christians, when we're facing this issue uh, with a loved one, uh, what what is... Uh, the choice here between these four. Oh, sure. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that up early on because I, if anybody listens to this, first of all, it's hard to talk about this if you've lost your parents, and I've lost both my mother and father, um, and, or if you've lost a loved one, or there's always a sense, Pat, of a great deal of guilt Mm-hmm. of, well, we didn't do this. We didn't go to extraordinary means. You know, is God going to judge me because we decided not to do chemotherapy or something like that? As you know, occasionally I teach at Dallas Seminary because I wrote, write this book. Whenever Dallas Seminary gets a question about this, they call me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when my phone rings at Probe, it's like, I don't even want to get into this. You know, there, there's been some really difficult questions I've had to deal with over the years with our seminary graduates and uh, hospital chaplains and the rest. But let's simplify things real quickly. There is a fundamental distinction between mercy dying and mercy killing. There's a difference between allowing nature to take its course, which would be what we would call passive, voluntary euthanasia, and active euthanasia. As a matter of fact, I would argue that passive, 
um, euthanasia, what we just talked about, voluntary passive euthanasia, really isn't even euthanasia at all. It's standard medical practice. My grandfather was a doctor, and um, back then they didn't have as many miracle drugs as we have now. And there were lots of times when he did the best he could to save a life, but he simply had to allow nature to take its course. And nobody saw that as euthanasia. No one saw that as even having any moral issues. If an individual has cancer and they say, look, I don't want to go through chemotherapy, I think that's permissible. If a person is uh, in end stages of uh, particular debilitating disease, I think it's permissible to put on the chart no code heart. In other words, if I have a heart attack, you don't have to resuscitate me. I think all of that is permissible. Uh, People can make choices about uh, whether they want a procedure or not want a procedure, and I don't think there's any question morally about that. But that is a fundamentally different kind of issue than active euthanasia. Mercy dying is different than mercy killing, where I do something to directly inject into you to kill you. Um, It's all the difference between allowing nature to take its course and playing God, if you will. Now, as soon as I try to make that distinction, let me just mention, and I don't want to get too complex here, that that line blurs a little bit. Certain kinds of pain medications, analgesics and things like that, if in treating the pain, can have a secondary effect of maybe short, uh, shortening life. Good example is my mother died of bone cancer. As she was in a fair amount of pain, we were giving her morphine. Now, we were doing that to treat the pain because it was horrible. But in so doing, we know that a secondary effect of morphine is oftentimes it it kind of causes respiration to be more shallow. It depresses respiration a little bit. So I have no doubt that in treating the pain and injecting her with pain medication that we may have unintentionally shortened her life by a few days. Every evangelical bioethicist I've ever read feels that that's legitimate because the goal was not to kill her. The goal was to treat the pain. And so there are, I think, various actions that we can take. There are things what are known as palliative care, the things that take place in a hospice unit that are permissible. But nevertheless, there is a fundamental distinction between, again, allowing a person to die and doing something to hasten their death. Right. And there's nothing wrong with trying to ease the pain and give the person, uh, you know, we talk about this whole idea of dignity uh, in death, you know, and people will argue, well, how can it be dignifying to see someone suffer, go through all this pain and, and suffering? Just make it easy, let them die with dignity, make it quick. And Kirby, yeah. that happens on the battlefield too, doesn't it? Triage, you know, you have people, triage coming from the French for three, you know, you put some people aside that have superficial wounds, you can treat them later on. You put another group aside, they have such significant wounds that you can do nothing to save them. And you focus on those who, if unless they get treatment this minute, are not going to live. And so you make some of those decisions. And obviously there are tough decisions that are made and, and, and decisions that are made, especially when you've had a, a terrorist attack or a, a plane crash or something like that that. But again, what you don't want to do is have bad cases make bad law. You know, those exceptions don't want to be is your principle. But uh, back to your point, uh, Pat, I think this death with dignity idea, you know, they have a duty to die or have a right to die. Well, I think it's clear to say that you have a right to life, and the Bible is very clear about that. But do you have a right to die? Do you have a duty to die? Do you have to die with dignity? If anything, the Scriptures seem to speak against this idea of that, because the right to die would be sort of the right to suicide, wouldn't it? And the Bible is pretty clear in saying that suicide is self-homicide, it's killing yourself, and it's not permissible. So um, the thing that I think works against us in this area of euthanasia is you hear these really tragic stories, circumstances, 
where maybe there was something that was botched, where maybe pen, paid medication was not given on a timely manner. And then we're saying, well, then shouldn't we kill those people? And the argument is, I don't know. I don't want to play God. And certainly as my father was going through Alzheimer's, he was not the father I knew before. And I certainly felt sorry for him. But I knew one thing, Pat, and that is I had no right to kill my father just because he wasn't the father I had before as his mind was going and some of his physical disabilities were playing themselves out. And in the same way, I think we have to recognize that there may even be, from a biblical point of view, value in suffering, significance that takes place there. Even if we don't understand all of those circumstances, I think we can understand one thing, and that is it's just important for us not to take the life of another individual. Yes, euthanasia, an issue that we all uh, will have to or have dealt with in our lives uh, with our parents and loved ones. And it's a great series. I highly recommend you go to probe.org and get Kirby's articles on this or to evidenceandanswers.com. And you can listen to this show and others on this whole series of medical ethics. Well, Kirby, let's talk about physician-assisted suicide. What's going on? Uh, not only in our government, but around the world in this whole area of legalizing physician-assisted suicide. This is kind of the new addition. This is this idea of what you might call voluntary active euthanasia. Sometimes it's even involuntary active euthanasia, where the argument is, is that under a certain set of specifications, it would be permissible for a physician to take the life of another individual. Now, this has existed for some time over in the Netherlands in a de facto way. Now it's actually been formally legalized, but it was also legalized in Oregon. Oregon is the home of the Hemlock Society, and we have uh, some initial uh, evidence coming in from our own country, but especially from the Netherlands, that begin to show us some very disturbing things. For example, they did a survey of Dutch physicians back in 1990. This was when it was just beginning, and now the new numbers are starting to come in. And they were finding, for example, that 1,000 patients were killed without their consent. Now think about this, Pat. This is a fairly small country, and even by 1990, you have over 1,000 physicians that were killed without their consent. You might be saying, yeah, but we're in the 21st century. Don't you have better numbers? I think they, I've never seen another study since then because I think once those numbers came out, nobody wanted to publish those because those numbers have got to be in the tens of thousands now. You can run the numbers and figure out how quickly that uh, changed that. Now, how, what kind of impact has that had in the Netherlands? I've never been to the Netherlands, but I've talked to people that have, and I've read uh, research reports that say something very interesting, Pat. Old people don't like to go to doctors. Wow. And you think about why. Yeah. They've seen a culture now that says if you have a particular defect or you have a particular feeling of uh, suicidal tendencies or if you have depression or if you are becoming too expensive to your family, you could be put to death without your consent. Now, it is amazing to me that this has happened in the Netherlands when you think about what the Netherlands suffered under Nazi Germany. Exactly. But nevertheless, it shows that all you have to do is have one generation pass, the next generation growing up in this um, death with dignity mindset, the fact that old people deserve to die, that uh, we are basing decisions about life and death not on the sanctity of human life but on the quality of human life. And you can begin to see the impact. Now, we don't have things quite as dramatic in the United States, but even so, when you go to Oregon, a few things are beginning to surface. There was a survey that came out by the Journal of the American Medical Association, and one thing they found was is that patients would doctor shop. 
That is, they were told that, you know, it was your doctor had to have a long-term relationship with you and then decide whether or not to inject something to kill you. But they found that on the average, many of these people that were put to death actually had been to one or two doctors and sometimes had a very short relationship with that doctor. Now, we also have to recognize that given physical disabilities, there are oftentimes emotional consequences. The example I love to use is Johnny Erickson Tata. I was able to share a platform with her recently when we were talking, talking about bioethics, and she pointed out that, you know, when she had a high cervical neck break and was a quadriplegic, she wanted to die. And if she could have found a physician or a Dr. Kevorkian to end her life, she would have done so because she was distraught over what the rest of her life would have been. Now, the question I ask for our listening audience is, if uh, Johnny Erickson Tata had been put to death, would the body of Christ lost a blessing? And I think we all know the answer to that. And you can see that sometimes when people lose a limb, they lose mobility, they lose eyesight, they lose whatever, that that is a very devastating issue. And they go through a time of depression, which is understandable, a time of grief. And if um, they just finally decide that that's it, they go to the doctor and simply say, I want to be put to death. In my book, you notice that I give you one very radical example. This goes back to the Netherlands of this uh, ballerina who developed arthritis in her toes. She's in her 20s. She thinks her life is over. And so she asked the doctor to kill her and she was put to death. Well, we, we just you know recoil at that, but you can realize how quickly you have to be pay, paying attention to the entire patient. They have physical disabilities, but they also have emotional issues as well. And if we just simply say anytime somebody wants to kill themselves, a doctor can be allowed to do so, you can see that we are going to live in a very different kind of world than the one that most of us have taken for granted. Wow. And as you mentioned last week, Kirby, euthanasia and abortion are... Uh, tied together, aren't they? I think so, because the same kind of arguments that have been used for years, pounded in our head, pro-choice, you know, death with dignity, you know, uh, all that can very easily bring us to a decision where all of a sudden we see people feeling that that is the answer to their problems. Now, let me just point out, Pat, real quickly, that again, in our articles and the book and some other things, we do give some people some guidelines, because people sometimes say, well, is it possible that I could have a living will or what is called a durable power of attorney or things like that. That's a more technical legal issue than we can probably deal with uh, today. But I think there are ways in which we can craft it and we can give some advanced directives and say, you know, you don't have to go to extraordinary means in every circumstance to save my life. But I think that that needs to be very well crafted with sort of pro-life language and maybe even have somebody who is going to administer that uh, particular legal document with a pro-life perspective. Because right now, in the medical profession, there is more and more the idea that if people say don't go to extraordinary means, it means pull out a feeding tube, don't put you on a respirator, we'll just let you die. And we have this cavalier attitude towards death, which we've inherited. And as you point out, Pat, it started with abortion, worked its way through infanticide, and now is surfaced in this growing area of euthanasia. Uh, Kirby, I want to throw you a curveball. Interacting with skeptics, which I often do, I see something very common coming up. And they say this, it would behoove the Christian parent to uh, take the life of their infant child to ensure that that child go to heaven. <laughs> now, this plays on the theology of most Christians, uh, evangelicals in particular, that would, would hold that uh, the child who dies in infancy would, would go to be with God. Rather than risk the possibility of him rejecting God, take his life and ensure heaven. Now, 
That comes up a lot yeah. in my interaction. Give us some uh, clarity on it. Well, first of all, the Bible tells us that we are not to take a life. You know, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not uh, murder is probably the best way to translate that. Uh, number two, I would agree with the idea that that child is probably going to heaven. There is a lot of evidence in Scripture, David talking about the fact that I, after his son uh, dies, his infant son dies, I will go to him, he will not come to me. So the implication is there. But uh, first of all, you're talking about taking a life. Second of all, you're removing all possibility of choice for that individual. And third and most importantly, God has a calling. He has a unique calling. You can see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and other passages for individuals. And we have, as a culture, lost tremendous blessings. Do we not believe that uh, uh, future Beethoven, Einstein, or whatever has been aborted by all of the things that have taken place uh, in the last 30 or 40 years? There are all sorts of tremendous blessings that we will never enjoy simply because of this idea of taking the life of an infant. And back to my argument with Johnny Erickson Tata a very good one. Um, would we have, as a body of Christ, lost a tremendous blessing if Johnny Erickson Tata had been able to find a physician that would have ended her life? And once you see that in her life, you can see that in taking the life of any other individual. So, first of all, it's wrong from a biblical point of view because it's murder. Second of all, it uh, denies that individual a choice, the free choice that they can make. And third of all, I think it denies the opportunity of them fulfilling their calling and thus uh, being a blessing to the body of Christ into the whole world. Yeah. Well, Kirby, why don't you give us the biblical view of death? What's the Bible say when we're facing these kinds of decisions? And I think we have to recognize again that uh, we don't see the word euthanasia in the Bible, but we do see that the Bible describes death as a time when the spirit leaves the body. Uh, we see that, for example, in Ecclesiastes, it says, you know, death occurs when the spirit returns to God and the body returns to the dust from which it's made. In James, it talks about just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So it certainly implies that it's a spiritual event that has physical and physiological consequences. So the implication I have for that is we want to make uh, extraordinarily sure that death has occurred. That's why even in our own society, we've moved from the idea of defining death as a cessation of heart because after all, I've met people who've had their heart stop and then restarted again by cardiopulmonary resuscitation. We use things like brainwave activity and all the rest. And so, first of all, we have to recognize that the Bible uh, describes that as a spiritual event that has physiological consequences, but also I think we have to recognize that the Bible does not allow us to take a life. As we've talked about before, basically the right to die is the right to commit suicide, and the Bible does not give us any positive example of suicide. If anything, it tells us that we are not to take our life or the life of another individual. Also, uh, you know, in the Bible, there are several cases there where people have committed suicide. Uh, Kirby, you go over that in your book a little bit, isn't there? But those were very extraordinary circumstances. Well, they certainly were. First of all, when you talk about suicide, uh, Judas, we don't see that in a positive light. Uh, mm-hmm. And even the one of King Saul here, you know, it's interesting that there was a story that uh, he was asked to be put to death, asked that a soldier put him to death. And we see that, again, that is not put in a positive light. So every time you try to find an example of, where, of ending a life, but because you even thought you were doing the right thing in the Bible, it is not seen in a positive light. If nothing else, there is just a strong emphasis throughout the Scripture of the sanctity of human life and that ultimately God is in control of our lives, and we need to make sure that we trust in Him, not in our own actions through a physician. All right. Thanks, Kirby, for being with us, and I want to recommend his book, Moral Dilemmas. You can get at probe.org. This concludes Pat's interview with Kirby Anderson of Probe Ministries. To learn more about Probe, 
visit their website. That's probe.org. Kirby Anderson has a wide variety of resources available to you. Evidence and Answers is a listener-supported ministry outreach. If you've been blessed by Evidence and Answers radio broadcast, please join us in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Click on the Donate button. Our key sponsor is Highland Capital Management, providing alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. That's it for now. Tune in next time as Pat and his friends discuss current issues and answer the tough questions we face today, providing reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers.